again, it's going to be Psalm 123. Uh, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is God's word. Good to see you all. Good to be back with you. I was excited to be with Doxology Church, getting my act together here. All right, so as our deacon said, we're going to be looking at Psalm 123 today. This is, uh, I don't know if, you've, if, if you read a lot of psalms, uh, particularly if you've read this genre of psalms before. Uh, this, uh, this is inclusive of the Psalms of Ascent, and those were a series of psalms that go from one, Psalm 120 all the way to Psalm 134 that the Jewish pilgrims would, would sing and recite as they were making their way to, oftentimes back to Jerusalem, on one of three high holy days. I don't know if this is actually true, but I've read more than one commentator that has said it. And so if more than one big brain person has said it, it's likely true. Most credit, uh, you know, the great theologian preacher Charles Spurgeon as the one who has made popular this idea of a, an ascent in the Psalms of ascent. And really one of the reasons why we call it that. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's great to, to train your eyes to the Psalms and see uh, this progression from wherever they are into Jerusalem as you're going through this this uh, genre of songs. And so the psalmist in 120, just for a little bit of uh, ramp up to Psalm 123, he's, he's somewhere far away from, from Jerusalem, miles and miles away. And from the words that he gives, he is longing to be with the people of God, worshiping in the house of God, kind of like us today, really desiring to come into worship. Then he branches into Psalm 121, and he's on the outskirts of Jerusalem. Uh, he sees the, the, the hills of Mount Zion before him, and in the midst of what he sees, he also is reflecting on how hard the journey has been. And the suggestion is, uh, it's been a tough road, okay? There's been marauders, there have been ambushes, there's been all kinds of things in their way in terms of obstacles to prevent them from getting to this place that they really, in their hearts, want to be. Some of these words are, uh, are familiar to you. Psalm 121, verse 1, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? And I don't think he, I don't think this is a rhetorical response. I think he's having a revelation from God, an epiphany, so to speak. And he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And if you go just, just read all the way through Psalm 121, these words are very familiar to us. And you can kind of see where the psalmist was. He was in a, probably uh, between a rock and a hard space. He's trying to make this journey because he's supposed to do it as an Israelite, but also his heart wants to do it. And he needs comfort and courage to make it the rest of the way. And the Lord gives it to him. Beautiful words. Psalm 122 is kind of special to me. Uh, kind of like our deacon was up here this morning. What, 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 Dan? Was it Dan? Connor? Yeah. So kind of like Connor was up here this I'm sorry, Connor, where is he? I'm sorry. Old age. So kind of like Connor was up here this morning. Kyle! Oh, Kyle! All right. I was also an artilleryman. Um, 
So kind of like Kyle, this is embarrassing. Kind of like Kyle was up here this morning. I grew up, uh, not as a Christian, but I grew up going to my grandmother's church. And uh, this is a, you know, a country black Baptist church. Um, and I have fond memories of it. We would come early, me and my grandmother and our family, and uh, there'd be testimony service. And right at 11 o'clock, a deacon would stand up and week after week, he'd open up his Bible and he would speak the words of Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet, verse 2, have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And it was, you know, he spread out his arms and say, hey, we've, we've dressed up. We're, we're fit for the part. Let's come in and worship the Lord. And that's kind of how the, the Psalms of Ascent continue to go. And that brings us to Psalm 123. A couple weeks ago when I was with you, uh, we talked about listening to God and, you know, prayer in terms of listening to God. And I want to continue on in, in that kind of refrain. We're kind of talking about praying or talking to God, but using Psalm 123 as a guide, really the thing that I'm honing in on is what the psalmist is honing in on. He's talking about getting our, our minds and our lives and even our hearts in focus. So we're going to talk about getting things in focus because that's what this, this psalm is all about. I'm looking around and I'm not seeing too many people that are uh, visually challenged, but if you wear any kind of corrective lenses, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about, when I say the words, getting, getting things in focus. Uh, I'm a young glasses wearer in terms of the, the length of years that I've been wearing glasses, maybe four or five years. Uh, I, I planted the transit here, and I don't know, four or five years in, I started needing help to see just even the words of my Bible. And uh, there were a couple Sundays that I, you know, I, w- I would have my reading glasses up, and I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to look good, so I'm not wearing glasses in the pulpit. I mean, who would do that? And so when I needed to read, I put my glasses on, and my wife, after, after a couple services of experiencing me doing this, she's like, you're killing us. Because I kept, I kept taking my my glasses on and off, and uh, and she's like, either get real glasses or or don't even get up there because it's like killing us. So, but that's the thing: if you wear any kind of corrective lenses, you know that you need the help, right? You need the help to be able to put things in focus. Without my glasses, everything was a blur. Uh, not just reading my Bible, but more so just like getting around a table. And so uh, getting things in the focus, the help that uh, that comes from corrective lenses is what I needed. Those glasses provided focus. I think in the same way, the encouragement from this psalm is to, to lift up our eyes. When our, when our lives are kind of blurry, we can't see our way when a situation or circumstance is kind of weighing us down and... Um, for whatever reason, we're unsure of the next step. It, it, we, we feel like, ah, I might get myself in trouble if I take this next step without seeing clearly. The psalmist encourages us to lift up our eyes. Now, we wouldn't say that like that today, would we? I mean, that's kind of, it feels archaic. We say it a little bit, a little bit different, maybe a little more hip. Hey, keep looking, keep looking up. Sometimes we wouldn't even say the words. We just like gesture, like you're, you're like, <laughs> you're playing a sport, like, pick. <laughs> Pick your game up, man. Come on, let's get it. I think there's a beautiful uh, parallel in, the, in the, the Hebrew writings. The writer of Hebrews says this, if I can get my Bible to agree with me. 
It's modern technology for you people. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Emphasis on looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith. I think the Hebrew writer is capturing the same thing that the psalmist is talking about. He's encouraging us. He's encouraging his audience. He's encouraging himself to keep his eyes on the Lord. So back to Psalm 123, having made his way into Jerusalem, he's got the comforting site of the, of the temple somewhere in view. He's come through, a, you know, kind of like a mighty long way. And finally, he's amongst the people of God. There's some comfort in his heart. All right, I'm around people who, who have the same um, longing that I do. He's excited. He's looking forward to worship. But he's also in the backdrop of his mind, thinking through all that he's come through, perhaps even all the, the, the rest of the journey that he has to, to, to try, acknowledging the trouble, talk, you know, thinking about in his mind the difficulty in his midst. And so the psalmist reveals that there's, there's something else that's going on, and we can't discern exactly what that is. He says he's surrounded by those who hate him. He says there's those, those who mock him. He's held in contempt by the proud. And that is the setting by which he sends up this prayer, this prayer that he himself would keep his eyes up, that he look to the Lord. And that makes this not just a psalm of ascent where he's excited to be worshiping with God. It also is kind of sort of a lament, a lament when you pour out your heart to God uh, and, and find um, no solution to the, the circumstance of your moment. I want to offer up as the question for us to ask and answer today with Psalm 23 as the, as the backdrop is, what do you do when you find yourself in a little bit of trouble and all you can do is lament? What do you do when you find yourself in a little bit of trouble and all you can do is, is lament? I like how one old saint said, take it to the Lord in prayer. Maybe you've heard these words, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? Y'all know this? You should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. All right. I love a singing church. And y'all are, y'all don't know, y'all know this? Y'all are a singing church. You guys have a great, I mean, I just, I love the, the, the acoustics of this theater room. But even without it, you all are a singing church. You got to live up to your reputation, right? And I don't sing those words with you just to make you hear my lovely voice, although I'm trying to impress John Campbell. <laughs> I think that's the secret to, to, to life itself, but more importantly, that's the formula for this, this psalm. It's a psalm about prayer. It's a psalm about talking to God. It's a psalm about the blessings that can come on you when you express the, you know, the raw things that are, that you're going through. I, I don't ever, I never come to y'all and talk and, and without giving you a Paul Miller quote. Paul Miller's like a contemporary mentor of mine, especially when it comes to praying. And Paul Miller has said this about prayer. He says, prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. Prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life, all that's going on, and your God, the things that you believe about God, is, is where they meet. And I think we see that definition acted out in Psalm 123. It's expressed in the opening words. To you, I lift up my eyes. To you, I lift up my eyes. And so that's a, the psalmist uh, demonstrates an important part of praying is looking up to God. And I think what 
what we'll see as we work through this psalm real quickly is in that simple act, we're also coming to God in all of our helplessness. We're submitting to God as servants. We're appealing to his mercy. We're submitting to God's timetable and coming to our aid, even as we look to him for for blessings. And so I want to talk for a few minutes about what does this psalm teach us about prayer? What does this psalm teach us about prayer? I'm going to suggest five things. The first thing, it teaches us that prayer should focus on God. This psalm teaches us that prayer should focus on God. In Luke 11, you don't have to turn there. The disciples uh, have been chasing Jesus down. He actually escapes for a few moments to get some time by himself and the disciples find him, and when they find him, one of them has the courage to ask Jesus, hey, look, can you teach us to do what you're doing? Can you teach us to, to pray like you're praying? And here's what Jesus says. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And so what I want to focus on is how Jesus begins this instruction in prayer. He's not giving them the things to say. He's giving them kind of an order, a a, a formula, so to speak. And he starts with this idea of when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. We all know this this is the the Lord's Prayer. Um, And so the question might be, well, I mean, if this is a formula and I should come to God hallowing his name when I pray, like, does, does every prayer need to be in that same formula? And I think if Jesus were here, like he is here in spirit, he would say, yeah, 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 prayers. Um, when you're happy, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of adoration, prayers when you're hurt, prayers when you need healing, prayers for someone else. It's always a good idea to acknowledge the God that we serve as we're praying. When we pray, I think Jesus would say we should firstly direct our minds and our hearts and we focus on the Lord. The psalm tells us why we should look to God. He says, and he continues, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. One translation says, you who dwell in the heavens, whose glory whose throne of glory is in the heavens itself. And so as with Jesus instructing us in the Lord's Prayer, I think the encouragement here is true prayer begins for us as we acknowledge God, the God that we are praying to. More specifically, it acknowledges the glory of God. Glory means a lot of things. It means splendor, renown. Some would say it means preeminence. I think it can also mean weight the weight of who God is, the totality of his existence, all that he is, the unmeasurableness of God. Have you thought about that? The unmeasurableness. I was reading a blog the other day, and this is a, this is a point of contention, but it was talking about, like, this isn't the only universe that, that exists. Like, I, I don't have a big enough brain to even fathom that or to know if it was true. I don't know if it was, like, fake news or whatever, but it was talking about just the existence of, you know, like the, the, the multi-universe, and, of course, they were saying to people, well, that's, that's, come on, we made that up. But then there's others that say, hey, there, there, there is other universes beyond what we could fathom. And, of course, if there are other universes, God has made those. He's, a, he's superintending over those even as we speak. So this idea of acknowledging God in prayer means that we come to him 
acknowledging his immensity. We speak of the glory of God. We're honoring his renown and his preeminence. I think it's important to start here, and I'm going to speak personally for myself. I think we start with acknowledging who God is and the immensity of who he is, because my propensity, maybe you share this with me, is to make God too small. We, we make God too small. How do we make God too small? We make God too small when we oftentimes acknowledge who he is. We might even say words like, God, you reign, you're in control, you're sovereign over all. But then when life happens in a time of crises or peril, just like life squeezes us, we work our problems out in our own strength. You ever done that? I do that a lot. One author notes, the Bible teaches two steps to effective prayer. The first being you remove from your thoughts every limitation that makes God too small. So how would that work? Like in the, the everyday activities of your life. So you're going through something and you are tempted to solve your problems in your own strength. Instead of doing that, you pause and you think about God and who he is. You acknowledge the God that you're serving. You think about his presence and you say, Lord, you're with me. There isn't a location on the entire created universe or the universes beyond that where you do not exist and where you cannot be found. And God, if you are everywhere, you're here with me right now. I'm going to take comfort in that, even with the issue that I have. So you think of his presence. You also think of his knowledge. And you say to yourself, there isn't one iota of knowledge that God does not know about everything going on. And God even knows about what's going on with me right now. So God, I, I give that to you. I release that to you. So presence, knowledge, and thirdly, you, you acknowledge the power of God. And you say to yourself, there isn't a force in the universe that's greater than my God. And if there's no force in the earth that's greater than you, then there's, 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 there's nothing that's greater than that, that's going to overcome me than you. So that's the first step. And the second step is, is to mimic how the biblical authors compare God and his power with every other thing in the world that we might call great. Because we have the propensity, especially in the Western world, to elevate a lot of things above the greatness of God. I like how Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 12. This is a long passage, but I think it's important to read it. Isaiah 40, starting at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the depth of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol, a craftsman caps it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. Who is too impoverished for, uh, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its its inhabitants like grasshoppers, 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rules of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. Long, long passage, but what the, the writer is hoping to convey to us is the immensity of God. There's no one like him. And I don't think the psalmist, Psalm 123, their author there, and the prophet Isaiah would have been contemporaries, but they're echoing the same thing to us. The same thing about God and his, and his greatness. The psalmist says, look at the task that God has done, and we should firstly model that in our prayer. Here's the second thing that I think we can learn from this psalm. Prayer is an expression of helplessness. Prayer is an expression of helplessness. That's what the psalmist is saying in verse two, uh, verse 3 and 4, when he cries out for mercy and speaks of his present condition as being one filled with contempt. He's saying, Lord, this problem, this, this situation that I find myself in, I'm like, I, I couldn't even change it if I wanted to. There's, there's absolutely nothing I can do about it. And so I, I bring it to you in all of my helplessness. I'm just going to like lay my hands out in my condition and I'm going to stretch my empty hands out to you and, and, and ask for mercy. And that's what he does. Again, Paul Miller echoes this sentiment in his book, A Praying Life. And he tells his readers that, quote, instinctively, we want to get rid of our helplessness before we come to God. God actually wants you to come to him empty-handed, weary, and heavy laden. That's like, that's like a quote from Jesus, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so here's what uh, Paul Miller is suggesting. He's suggesting that prayer is bringing our helplessness to Jesus. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. Think about uh, John chapter 2, when, Jesus, when, when Mary, Jesus' mother, asked Jesus to to come alongside and help the help this couple in Cana who had gotten married and they run out of wine, Jesus does what only Jesus can do. He turns water into wine. And I, you know, just thinking about that, um, there was nothing really threatening about that incident, about that, that situation. Um, no one was going to die because they ran out of wine. It would have been at most a social faux pas. Maybe they would have been talked about in the community for a couple years. Uh, but, but even then Jesus comes along and he helps to add joy to an occasion. There's several stories in God, John's gospel along with that, where we see people coming to Jesus because of their helplessness. In John 4, you're familiar with the, uh, the, the very famous story of the Samaritan woman. She comes during the height of day, um, because of her shame, because of how she's lived her life. She comes to get water, and Jesus, knowing her story, engages with her, and he helps her by offering her the, the springs of living water that should she receive him would flow from her very own belly. And I, we, it's, it's believed that she came to faith in those moments. Later in that same chapter, Jesus uh, is wandering through Capernaum, and there's an official son who had been chasing Jesus down as, as, uh, as he came into Cana of Galilee. And this official in particular had a son who was ill, and he finds himself desperate for help for his, for, for, to heal his son. And so he comes to Jesus. 
He asks Jesus to come with him, and Jesus challenges the man's belief, and Jesus ends up just speaking a word, healing the son, and of course, he helps this, this man and his son with, with healing. There's a crippled man laying by the pool of Bethesda in John 5 who needed help. He needed help with his life. He was crippled, lame, had lain there for many decades, and he wanted help specifically to, to get into water that stirred, thinking that that water was going to heal him. What does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't help him in the water. Jesus says, he says, hey, get up, take up your bed, and start walking. And he does that. And Jesus changed his whole life, helping him. In John 6, there's a crowd that's following Jesus. And of course, they're following him to see what his next miracle was. And they, they're in a remote place. The disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, we need to send them away. We don't have food to feed them. And Jesus says, we can help. And what does he do? He does the miracle of feeding four or 5,000 people with only a couple of fish and, and, and a loaf of bread. But more importantly, he helps them by, give, by, by making, him known, making himself known as a bread of life. Lastly, John 11, as an example, uh, Jesus, one of his closest friends, Lazarus, ends up dying. He has no life in him. How does Jesus help? Jesus is the only one that could help. He comes and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus come forth and he brings him back to life. Paul Miller says, we receive Jesus because we are weak. We receive Jesus because we are weak. And that's how we continue to follow him. Proof text, Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you receive Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk in him. I think for many of us, we forget helplessness is how the Christian life works. And so my, my question for you, Doxology Church, is have you recognized yet that you're helpless? And if so, what would it mean for you to cry out to God in your helplessness? And so the psalmist reminds us, um, that's what prayer is all about. It's just an expression of our helplessness. Here's the third thing that we find out in this psalm. Prayer appeals to the mercy of God. We see this at the end of verse 2. Two more times in verse 3. Here's how it reads. So our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Verse 3, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. We don't actually know what all the, what's all that's going behind the, the passion of the psalmist to express this like he is expressing it. There's contempt, there's some kind of scorn, there's a taunt of the proud that he'll mention in verse 4, but what has really happened, we don't actually know, but I think that's inconsequential. I think what we're supposed to notice and focus on is that this guy is asking for mercy, and it's giving us permission to, uh, to, to do the same. Um, mercy is all over the Bible, like almost every other page. You're seeing God in, uh, in his person extending mercy to people like us that need it. Uh, mercy is the attribute in the Bible that shows us the heart of God. It shows us his character. The prophet Micah says, who is a God like you who pardons sin, who forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. This is, the, this is the character of God. That's Micah 7, verse 18. I was reading out of the NIV. And so the question is, what is the, what is the heart of God? According to the psalmist, it's, it's, it's to show mercy to those, to, to those who need it. 
And so the prophet Micah encourages us as well that the heart of our covenant God is a place that he'll show that he'll show mercy. He shows mercy to sinners. He shows mercy to people like us. He shows mercy to children who cry out in their 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 need for help. And I think that's what the psalmist is is touching on. The Greek Orthodox Church uses a simple fifth century prayer called the prayer of Jesus. And you've heard these words before. It goes like this. Lord Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You guys have heard those words before, right? Okay. You may have even have have uttered them. You might utter them every single day. Um, In Orthodox tradition, it's called a breath prayer. A breath prayer and contemplative talk is just a prayer that we can say in one breath, but a breath prayer is really more than that. A breath prayer is kind of like a centering prayer. It focus, focuses your heart and mind when your life, when your life or your thoughts might be a little chaotic. I, I, uh, my favorite breath prayer is just to say, Lord, help. I'm reminding myself, Jesus is Lord, um, and I need help in so many ways. And so in the same vein, uh, this, this prayer, um, it's one that the Greek Orthodox, Orthodox Church uh, acknowledges often, but we actually shouldn't give credit to the Greek Orthodox Church because actually the first person that we hear saying that is blind Bartimaeus, right? Luke 18, blind Bartimaeus. Um, Jesus and his entourage are coming into Jerusalem. Blind Bartimaeus is doing what a blind person sitting along the side of the road would do. He's begging and he discerns an entourage coming by and he hears people talking of Jesus of Nazareth and finding out who Jesus of Nazareth was from this crowd, he starts yelling out, Jesus of Nazareth, um, come to my aid, come help me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And uh, it's an interesting story because firstly, the, the, the passion of blind Bartimaeus is evident but there's also kind of a tension in the scene because this entourage kind of sort of wanted Jesus for themselves. They're following Jesus for whatever their own personal reasons for following Jesus was like. And I can imagine the scene is like, stop calling out Jesus. He's our Jesus. We're the ones walking with him. You just stay where you are. And the louder that the crowd would shush Bartimaeus, the louder he would, uh, he would, he would give this refrain, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I think the lesson from that is very simply, um, think about what you pray about when you pray. But more than that, what do you pray the most? What do you pray about the most? And of course, our, our prayer lives can be filled with all kinds of very meaningful and needed prayers, um, prayers for provision, prayers for more pay, prayers for better health, healing in our bodies, praying for someone else. Sometimes we might need a new car, prayer uh, to resolve a family crisis. But I think there's something about blind Bartimaeus' prayer, but also about what the psalmist is asking for. When is the last time you just prayed for mercy? When is the last time you just prayed to God for mercy? Fourth, prayer is a struggle. There's a subtle impression that this psalmist has been praying these same words for some time. They flow out of his, out of his writing, out of his lips, um, easy enough that it seems like he's been here before. We could say it like this. He's got the T-shirt, and, and maybe that T-shirt would say, struggle bus, like, like life is not going well. I'm struggling in all kinds of ways, and I've actually got a seat on the bus. And... Perhaps the flow and the, you know, the, the, all that's happening here 
is reminding us of how difficult prayer can can sometimes be. And the thing that I think for me, maybe for you as well, that's a struggle for prayer is when we pray a very heartfelt prayer and and from our own perspective, God is not responding as quick as we would like him to. Sometimes we pray, we pray, you know, just the, the heartfelt burdens of our heart. And it feels like not only do we not get the answer that we want in the time that we think we need it, but it feels like the situation gets worse. You're not alone when you, if you think that. You guys have heard of the English hymn writer John Newton. He wrote the, the hymn Amazing Grace. He also wrote this hymn here. His words are, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I thought that in some favorite hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evil of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might seek that all in me. You get what John Newton is saying? He's, he's first pointing out the struggle, the, the, the struggle that many of us have praying to God, heartfelt prayers, not necessarily getting back the answers that we want. Maybe even sometimes life getting getting harder. But I think more important to John Newton is pointing out this is part of the journey. This is like the everyday life of the Christian. Life is a struggle. Prayer is a struggle. Uh, these words are kind of transparent. They're written like a journal from, from John Newton's, you know, his own, own diary. Uh, of his own dialogue with the Lord. And no doubt, if you know a little bit about John Newton's story, he was a, 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 sh- a, a ship captain, captain of a ship, a slave ship captain during the trans- transatlantic slave trade. He becomes a Christian through that, gets convicted of what he's doing, and he becomes one of the, 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 the chief abolitionists of slavery uh, in all of England and an influencer uh, in the world in that regard. And I think maybe this, just the guilt of that never went away. And so very transparently, he's like displaying to the Lord, all right, Lord, like take this feeling away. Take some of the, the sins that I feel uh, that I don't feel like I've gotten redemption from away. And uh, the psalm reflects something of the pain and something of the struggle of that. Here's the last thing that I think we get from Psalm 123, and then we'll be done. And it's this, prayer submits to the timetable of God. We actually skipped a verse. I'm going to go back to it, Psalm 123 verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has had mercy upon us. There's a, a reference in this verse to what would have been common in the ancient Near Eastern culture regarding the relationship between a master and their servant. And the suggestion here is that in this culture, the longer a servant has worked with a, a master, the more the servant can attend to what the master needs. A gesture of the hand, a turn of the head, even a shrug of the shoulders would suggest 
to that servant, hey, do this for me, answer this command without a word being ever even being spoken. And the more attuned the servant was to the master, the more his guidance would be conveyed and that servant could then go and do the work that needs to be done. And of course, the semblance here is of our relationship with the Lord, who is who is our master. Jesus, we come to Jesus for guidance and his word, even this morning. And the opportunity for us as servants of Jesus is to glean from his word and then respond. Okay, we respond as the Holy Spirit gives us uh, unction to do so. We're completely dependent on him for salvation and for life. And so we look to our Lord, not just for the gifts that he gives us, but more so for the graces of a new day. We're dependent on Jesus to provide what is required for provision for our lives. As servants, we look to Jesus for, for protection, to deliver us from things large and small. As servants, we look to our master for correction. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And so these words are applicable to us and our relationship with Jesus. But the thing I would want you to, to focus on as I get ready to close is the word till. They kind of sneak up on us, don't it? The word till. So our eyes look to the Lord, our God, till he has mercy on us. That's an insignificant word. It's a connecting word. But I, it stands out to me um, in the sense that for me, that's the problem. Our eyes look to the Lord till he has mercy on me suggests that there's a little bit of waiting to do until the Lord responds sometimes. Sometimes we don't get the thing that we need as soon as we ask for it. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I pray, I want the answer right away. When I ask for mercy, I want it like now. I don't want to have to wait for it. We want our pains and our troubles completely eradicated the very hour we ask for it. But sometimes that timetable is not God's timetable. Isaiah says it, right? Isaiah 55, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And what the psalm is calling on us to do amidst the troubles of life is to wait on the Lord. Here's how Isaiah finishes. We read a little bit. We read a lot of Isaiah 40 a few minutes ago. Here's how that passage ends up. I'm going to start in verse 28. Have you, ha- have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall be exhausted. Verse 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall run and not faint. Praying is hard. I don't know about you, but waiting is even harder. And so here's my prayer for us, that uh, the Lord would impress upon us to know where to look when life squeezes us. He says to look to the Lord. We look to the Lord our God who's enthroned in the heavens, and may he equip us to keep our gaze on him until he has mercy on us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word.